0: for his faithfulness and the way he provides, and he has so, so many times, and I will say it's sometimes hard for me to preach right afterwards when my daughter's the one who's been singing, so thank you for the break for me too, Ms. Betty. <laughs> I appreciate that very much. The theme of UPS is, most of y'all probably know this, what can Brown do for you? It is a brilliant marketing slogan, and every time you see brown, you're supposed to think of UPS, and they do a great job of making sure that every time you see them, you see something that's brown. The trucks, for example, are brown, their uniforms are brown, and most of the boxes are brown, although I think the boxes were brown before UPS came along. Well, what is it that defines us as Christians? In a manner, Paul is answering this question in his sermon that's found in Acts chapter 13. The sermon really starts in verse 16 and runs through verse 47, but we're not going to read 30 verses today. Instead, what we're going to do is we are going to focus on a few verses. Although I do want to point out that there is a stereotype that proves to be true in verse 16. I was always told that both Jews and Italians tend to talk with their hands a lot. And Paul is repeatedly defined as being a Jew. Well, in verse 16, it says that Paul stood up, motioning with his hands, he began to speak. Um, That means he was Jewish. By the way, just to let you know, watching some of y'all, I've come to the conclusion that some of y'all might be Jewish or Italian as well. Anyways, as Paul begins to speak, his entire message is about identifying what it is that defines those who are in Christ. Now, he's speaking to the people at Antioch, and this is incredibly important to us this morning. Antioch was an ancient Greek city, which means that it is primarily made up of Gentiles. A Greek city would have primarily been Gentiles. And remember that Jews rarely had acceptable contact with Gentiles. Yet Paul and Barnabas set out to share the gospel in this particular place. As a result, knowing that they didn't have the rich religious heritage that Paul had, knowing that they had not been raised in good Jewish homes, he goes to the foundation of their faith. In other words, you can't start with step three when the people that you're dealing with are only at step one. So where this really applies with us is that what we're looking at today is intended to be foundational to our faith as well. If we don't get this part right, then the rest of our faith story is very fragile. It's starting in the wrong place. So let's get to the key verses for today. It's found in Acts 13. I already mentioned that, but verses 38 through 39. This is what it says. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. So, I want to start here, even though it's not the first thing that's actually in your notes this morning, we're talking about this unlikely audience. Remember, they're meeting here in Antioch, and from the very beginning, Paul finds common ground with these unclean Gentiles. He doesn't portray himself as being better than them in any way. Instead, he addresses them as brothers. Now, this could indicate that there were possibly some Jews who were present, but more than anything, it probably sends a message that we are in this together. Have you ever looked around and seen other people and you look at the decisions that they've made and almost unintentionally began to look down on them? Thinking to yourself, much like the man who prayed, thank you, Lord, for not making me like this individual. Have you ever looked at the brokenness of others and seen yourself as being somewhat superior to them in some way or another? The problem with that mentality is it's wrong. The apostle Paul would have known that because Paul knew the things that he had done prior to him coming to Christ. And you can call all the Gentiles unclean all you want. Paul was one who actually had Christians arrested and murdered. He stood by and watched as Stephen was stoned to death. People laid their cloaks at his feet. He was just as responsible as those who threw the stones that day. So for him to look down on anyone else would have been completely hypocritical. He sends a message as he refers to them as brothers, that this is not something that is just for the Jewish people, but rather this hope and this grace that is being offered is actually in, intended, it is extended to all of the human race. And this, this is a little bit of a side note here, but it's also important to note that Antioch becomes a very important city for Christians. We're told later in this, uh, in this particular passage that this is the first place where people were called Christians. It is as if this is the birthplace or the cradle of Christianity. Now, it's funny that God would give Gentiles this honor. Not the Jews, but rather the Gentiles. So as Paul addresses them, note what he says. Let it be known to you that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. If you read through the verses leading up to verse 38, it's not hard to see that the reference of this man is clearly pointing to Jesus. Paul is declaring that forgiveness of sins is only available in Jesus Christ. This is important for multiple reasons. To begin with, in their culture, there were many, many gods. Not only do they have the many Greek gods of mythology, but you have many other gods that would have been associated with the nations that had come under Roman rule. Well, none of these false gods, these other gods, had the power to grant forgiveness of their sins. And even those who didn't believe in the one true living God knew that sin was a problem. They might not have called it sin, but they knew that there was a difference between right and wrong. And they all knew that there had been times that they had been on the wrong end of goodness and evil. When Paul wrote that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, he wasn't presenting some new novel idea. Everybody knew that already. In fact, this leads to the other reason why this man, Jesus, being the source of our forgiveness is so important. You see, for many of the people, much like people today, there was a mindset that my goodness can somehow make up for the evil and the sin that is present and has been present in the past. In other words, if I do enough good, it can somehow outweigh the bad that I've done, but it actually doesn't work that way. Consider the fact that your sin cost Jesus Christ his life. He went to the cross to pay the price for your sin and for my sin. If that is the case, how much good would you need to do in order to make up for such a tragic result? Remember, Jesus is perfect. That makes him better than you. How much good would you have to do to make up for what you caused in Jesus Christ dying on the cross? It can never be enough. So Jesus is the only way to find forgiveness. And this is still true today. But I ask you a question. Maybe this sounds like a dumb question. I don't know. Which Jesus are we talking about? I'm not talking about Jesus, the the guy that works at the construction site down the road. There are people who still have the name Jesus, Jesus. I'm talking about which Jesus are we talking about? We're talking about the Jesus of the Bible, right? But maybe it's not such a dumb question. In fact, let me propose something extreme to you this morning. What if not everyone who calls themselves followers of Jesus Christ is really a follower of the biblical Jesus Christ? I believe that millions of sincere, professing Christians simply do not realize that they believe and are practicing ideas and traditions in total contradiction to what Jesus Christ taught and practiced. So How is that possible? Maybe some of it is because we've watered down what Jesus Christ is really all about. We look at what the church has done, and in so many cases, we tried so, well, so hard to fit in well with the community around us, to be more palatable, more attractive to other people. and In some ways, we have wandered away from what Jesus Christ was truly all about. Most of us really want to worship the God of creation. I do believe that. We want to honor Jesus Christ and to serve him in the way he says. But we may have been seriously misled by people who have taught us wrongly how to seek and to serve the Lord. Consider the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, verse 3 and 4. He says, "...but I fear, lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness," so your minds may be corrupted from this simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you, have, if you receive a different spirit from which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. Today, there are all kinds of approaches to what we call Christianity ranging all the way from New Age thinking that has weaved its way into Christianity to some forms of Roman Catholicism to hyper-emotional, charismatic groups. Although all may use the term Jesus in their worship, they often have totally different understandings of what Jesus actually stood for and what he taught. Each and One sense is worshiping a different Jesus Christ. Each is preaching a different gospel. I'm going to give you a quick example of this. And it's a little bit dangerous because I have friends who watch this uh, from past experiences. And they pay attention to the sermons each week. Did you know that there are many faiths out there that believe in Jesus? But they see Jesus in very different ways. An example of this would be in the Mormon church. In the Mormon church, there is the belief that Jesus Christ is a son of God. Pay very close attention to what I said, that Jesus Christ is a son of God. Actually, Joseph Smith was his brother. So is Satan. What happened to Jesus being the only begotten son of God? Suddenly, his sacrifice is not all that special. Oh, I know that they'll talk very graciously about Jesus. I have a good friend who contacted me recently. At the end of his contact, he thanked me for being his brother in Christ. And he is my brother, much like as Paul addresses the Gentiles, he addresses them all as brothers. But the reality is the Christ that he worships in the Mormon faith is not the same. As the Christ that we worship in the Christian faith, it's a hard truth. Each will often follow human traditions and ideas rather than the clear instructions of the Almighty God and His inspired Word. Jesus spoke of his situ- this situation when He rebuked the Pharisees for their emphasis on human tradition as opposed to the law of God describing how their tradition caused them not to honor their father and mother as God commanded. Jesus said, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. Hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophesy about you, saying, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Most of these Pharisees were presumably very sincere. They thought they were worshiping the God of the Old Testament, who actually was standing right in front of them as Jesus Christ, the word that had become flesh. But they were worshiping him in vain because of their following traditions rather than following Jesus Christ. According to Jesus Christ Himself, it is possible to worship Him in vain. So let me share with you what must be core to what the biblical Jesus must look like. If you are a follower of the biblical Christ, this is what should be evident in you. And I just have three simple things, but they are huge. I'm going to tell you that the biblical Christ is Holy. And if you are to be a follower of Jesus Christ, you must walk in the holiness of God. We are instructed according to the scriptures be ye holy, for I am holy. It matters that we walk in the holiness of God. It's not as if we can, you know, we've received this grace and therefore it doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want now. That is biblically incorrect. The apostle Paul said, shall I continue in sin so that grace might abound even more? And he answered the question, no way, absolutely not. It matters that we walk in holiness. It's not something that you can just choose, well, I don't really like the holiness part, so I'm just going to follow these other two things. No, God expects that his people would represent him well. I love when someone says, You know, I I see your kids doing something that reminds me of you. Well, I I like it most of the time. When they're doing things that they're not supposed to do, I don't like that very much at all. But when I am a child of God, I ought to act like my heavenly father. I ought to take on the characteristics that reflect him. And as children of God, we are called to be holy. And therefore, we can't just pick and choose when we're going to be holy. The second thing that must be present in the biblical Jesus is grace and compassion. It almost sounds like a contrast because here we are, we're talking about the need to be holy, to make sure you live a life that reflects the character of God, making sure that you live up to a certain standard. And then we talk about grace. You see, the grace is so important because the reality is There will be times that unfortunately, we probably will not live up to the holiness standard that God has called us to. I can't make up for that. His grace is the only thing that can. But it goes beyond just the grace. I said grace and compassion. We are the body of Christ and we ought to be the most compassionate people around us. It breaks my heart sometimes when I see people who are so compassionate, so generous, so willing to give to those who are in need. And often they are people who are outside the body of Christ who are doing it. And I'm grateful for their generosity, but they should never be more generous and more compassionate than we are as children of God. Jesus modeled this. I picture the woman who had been caught in adultery, who she has brought before Jesus. By the way, in this moment, you actually see not only his compassion, but you see his holiness coming into play at the same time. Again, you can't have one and just pretend that the others aren't there. You can't have two and pretend that the others aren't there. In that particular instance, this woman is brought before Jesus, and she does not deny that she has been caught in the act of adultery. Jesus shows her incredible compassion. He says, where are those who have judged you after they've all left, after he's addressed the fact that he who is without sin should cast the first stone? And, of course, each one of them wanders off because they recognize, well, it's not me. Because all of them had sinned. So Jesus says to her, where are your accusers? She said, there are none. They've all left. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. But then he instructs her. Now you go and sin no more. In that moment, he shows her grace, shows her compassion, and he calls her to holiness. It's not as if you have to pick which one you're going to have. You can have both. You can be a holiness body filled with great compassion and grace. This leads to the last item that we see so prevalent in Jesus as well. Not only should we be people of holiness, not only do we look at the biblical Jesus as being a holy Jesus, not only is he filled with grace and compassion, but specifically he meets the needs of others. When individuals were sick, Jesus didn't just say, you're not my problem. There were all kinds of people that were sick, and there were times that people didn't get healed until afterwards. We know that Peter and John, as they go to the temple, there's a man who is there begging every day. And he's asking for alms. And Peter says to him, silver or gold I do not have, but what I have I give freely. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk. And that's exactly what he does. Well, if the guy met there every day, that means Jesus probably had walked by on multiple occasions. I don't understand why Jesus chose to heal somebody the first time, and then he let someone else wait on other occasions. His will is better than mine. I get that. But the point of this is to recognize that Jesus in his 33 and a half years did everything he could to meet the needs of others. He saw the brokenness of others and he reached into their lives. What does that look like for us? As those who are in the body of Christ, there are broken people all around us today. Now, I recognize that when we see the brokenness of others, there may be certain things that catches my attention that might not catch your attention, or there are things that you'll see that the person beside you won't see. When God points out to us the brokenness of others, we cannot be content with leaving that brokenness there. We must do whatever it takes to meet those needs. So when a family is grieving we do whatever we can to bring comfort and encouragement. When individuals are under oppression, we do whatever we can to support, to show them that they are not forgotten, that they are loved. When an individual is sick and unable to do the things that they normally would do, we do whatever it takes to provide for them. I read a post recently on Facebook and it was a post that in many ways was addressing this very need within the church. There was a time that the church spoke out to the brokenness and reached out to the brokenness of our world. When there were children that were neglected, the church stepped in. The need for adoption. When was the last time the church actually said, you know what, we want to do something about kids that need a home? When was the last time we actually stepped up when there was that brokenness facing us. The reality is the church should be caring more about the brokenness of our world than anybody else. Because we're supposed to be like Jesus and that's what he did. By the way, a great example of where this has happened in the history of the church is in the the, uh, Underground Railroad. Most of the stops on the Underground Railroad, that is where many slaves were escaping to freedom. Most of the stops on the Underground Railroad were either housed by Christians or actually in churches, where individuals in the church said, I cannot ignore the brokenness that is taking place. I will step up to the plate. It's compassion. It's meeting the needs of others. And that's the kind of Christ that we have been called to serve. I said this already, but if any of these three elements are not part of your Jesus, then we're probably not talking about the same Jesus. To put this in a different way, I shared recently about Micah 6.8 being the foundational verse of our church. If your Jesus isn't acting justly, isn't loving mercy and walking humbly with our heavenly Father, then we are not talking about the same Jesus. So I ask you, which Jesus are you following today? Now, we've already talked briefly about forgiveness, and there are many passages of Scripture that address the source of that forgiveness being Christ. One of my favorites that you have heard me quote on many occasions comes from 1 John 1, 9, which says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But I love what Paul says in Ephesians 1, verse 7 and 8. He says, In him, we have redemption. In him, again, we're talking about Jesus. We have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace, which he made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. This is that same idea of forgiveness of sins being found only in Jesus Christ. But this verse also brings in the idea of redemption. This is a term that is often used outside of the church world. I think some of the vocabulary we use at church, sometimes the rest of the world looks and says, what are they talking about? We don't talk about sanctification any other place except in the church world, for example. But redemption is one of those words that does get used as we do things like redeem coupons. But it also is a term that was used during the days of slavery. There were two general ways that an individual might find themselves in bondage to slavery. First, they could become a slave to another due to one being overpowered by the other. This could happen nationally or individually, but it typically would be a national thing. For example, one army is about to wipe out another. So the other people group, knowing that they are weaker, they surrender for the sake of avoiding death. They might become slaves moving forward. Another way that people might become slaves is by their own choices or circumstances. An example of this is when an individual might spend too frivolously and find themselves in debt to another person. In that situation, The one in debt might become a slave to pay off the debt. This is in keeping with Proverbs 22.7, which says, The rich rules over the poor, and the borrower is slave to the lender. But of course, the problem with this is that often the debt is never truly paid off. In either case, the slave owner has always seen the slave as a source of income or a tool to make life easier on themselves. As such, the slave owner could put a value on the slave, declaring that if this amount were to be paid, the slave could be set free. This would be the redemption price. I read an article this week as Tim Tebow was recounting an experience that his father had with human trafficking. Apparently, there were three young ladies that were up for sale. His father knew that if others bought them, They would do evil things with them. So his father determined he would pay whatever price they asked to buy them. Spending $1,200 of his own money, he bought their freedom. He paid their redemption price. Well, our redemption price is paid by the blood of Jesus Christ. Yes, the wage of sin is death. So Jesus paid our wage by dying on the cross for you and for me. Now we no longer have to be slaves to sin anymore. You and I can truly be free. But there's another verse that I want to share with you today. It comes from Colossians 1 verses 13 and 14. It says, "...he has delivered us from the power of darkness." and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. There's that word again, redemption leading to forgiveness. But there's also this idea that we are moved from darkness into light by the power of Jesus Christ. What a beautiful image, especially for those of us who might be afraid of the dark. I was talking with Jonathan, most of you remember Jonathan, Uh, he recently moved to Georgia where he's pastoring a church, and he was sharing that his current living situation is not exactly the way he had planned. As many of you know, Celia is back in the United States, and they are planning to get married a little less than a month from now, but she's already with him in South Georgia. They didn't want to live together before they got married, though. So she's living in the parsonage of the church while he lives in a trailer on a nearby Christian campground. The problem with this campground, though, is that there is nobody there this time of year. That is, except him and a whole bunch of wildlife. He was warned the night that he moved in that there were scorpions, poisonous snakes, alligators, and random people who might pass through. In addition to these critters, there are no lights except that which is given off by the moon and the stars. Now, I don't care if you've never been afraid of the dark or not. In his situation, every sound would make your heart race. Of course, he also shared that he thinks he's watched too many scary movies throughout the years, and it looks really familiar as he looks out at that trailer. Well, imagine when you are suddenly moved from darkness into light. That's what Jesus does with us. We no longer have to live in fear of the unknown, but rather we can live in excitement and anticipation of what awaits us around the next corner. Getting back to our original passage, verse 39 says, By him, Jesus... Everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This freedom is so important, but that's what awaits us around the next corner when we've moved from darkness into light. And As I read this, my mind immediately goes back to Galatians 5, verse 1 declares that for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not... Imagine being set free, knowing that all of the struggles, the bondage that you've been in, that it's gone, it's a thing of the past, and then you willingly choosing to go back into it. I talked about dumb questions earlier. That's probably the dumbest thought you could ever have. You're telling me that I have experienced bondage and now I've been set free, but I want to go back to it? By the way, that's what the Israelites did when they fled Egypt. And then they became concerned that Moses was just leading us in circles. You know what? At least back in Egypt, we had three square meals a day and we had a place to lay our heads. Let's just go back to the same bondage that we cried for the Lord to deliver us from. Makes no sense. Paul then addresses some issues with circumcision here in. Galatians 5, something that the Old Testament law required, but the New Testament apparently did not. Apparently, the people of the Old Testament had all these laws that they kept, but it wasn't enough to keep them holy. Remember, we're supposed to be holy people, but apparently they still needed a Savior, a Redeemer, because all the laws were never enough to make them holy. They still found themselves continually running back to that which was evil. Paul is saying that the law didn't set us free, but the Spirit of God in us does set us free. In fact, he later provides a list of things that the Spirit sets us free from. He says, beginning in verse 19, that now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger... Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm going to go back to the statement of which Jesus are you serving. If you are still participating in the things of the flesh that are defined here in Galatians chapter 5, then the odds are you're not serving the same Jesus that we see in the scriptures. He then adds a counter to these things. As you are free, these are things that should be absolutely present in your life. He says that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And remember, we're talking about law here, the law of the Old Testament that wasn't enough to set us free. And Then he says, against such things, there is no law. If you do those things, you don't have to worry about it. If you allow the Spirit to dwell in you, these are the things that should naturally flow out of you. The point of this is that when you become free, you don't act the same as you did before. And this should be true for those who become free by the blood of Jesus Christ. I ask you today, which Jesus are you serving? What can your Jesus do for you? I started with what can Brown do for you? That's, that's nowhere near as fun. What can your Jesus do for you? I believe he can transform your life. I believe that he can give you that compassion and grace. And I believe that he can equip you to truly make a difference in the lives of broken people around you. By the way, for many of us, some of this is theory. Theoretically, we should be making a difference in people's lives. I'm really challenging you today to make it more than theory. Go out and make a difference. Take this Spirit of God. Take this Jesus that dwells in you and allow him to move in your heart, in the lives of people around you. Let it be more than theory. Let it be real. If you would bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Father, as we come before you today, Lord, we recognize that, Lord, we have all fallen short. Many of us have followed after a Jesus that doesn't really measure up with the biblical Jesus. Maybe we've liked the idea of making a difference in people's lives. Or maybe on the other hand, we've liked the idea of calling people to holiness, but we've not actually brought the two together. Lord, I pray that you would allow us to truly follow after your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would make us people that the rest of the world could look at and know that there is something different about us, and it's because we reflect the true nature of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to never be satisfied with anything less. Lord, today we confess that we have fallen short and we ask that you would forgive us. We pray that your spirit would empower us from this moment forward to not do this as a theory where we're thinking this might be true, but help us to live it out every single day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It is such a blessing to be able to worship with you this morning. I do have a couple minutes, so I want to share with you guys something really cool. Do I have a couple minutes? I got one minute. All right. Um, The local church here has extended an offer to me, and I am very, very grateful for that. Uh, Next Sunday, I am going to preach, uh, which is what I do every Sunday. But... Uh, After that, I'm going to take five Sundays off. Uh, They're giving me what's called a sabbatical. Uh, I've been pastoring for 27 years and never had more than two Sundays off. And I'm going to take the next, after next Sunday, I'm going to take the next five Sundays off. I will tell you that we have some incredible speakers who are lined up to speak during that time. Uh, You will actually... I'm afraid some of you might think, Pastor, you could stay away for 10 weeks if you wanted. Um, Basically, for the whole month of June, I am going to uh, be on vacation. Uh, I'm going to take some time to write. I'm going to take some time to just rest, to be able to spend time with my family. Uh, This is something that sometimes pastors don't get enough of. Uh, Actually, I was looking at some statistics this morning, and uh, coming out of COVID, Um, about 35% of pastors were either leaving the ministry or considering leaving the ministry. I'll tell you, I'm not, but I don't want to get burned out. And I want to know that when I come back, I am refreshed and ready to go. So first of all, I thank you as a church for enabling me to be able to do this. Uh, But then I also encourage you, don't skip just because the pastor ain't here. The truth is, you're going to have incredible speakers who are going to share. Pastor Lee is going to share. Uh, Pastor Colby is going to share one week. We have um, actually Mark James, who is a retired minister. He's going to share. Paul James, who is the assistant district superintendent. He is going in uh, in the South Coastal District. He is going to share one week. And then Landon Davis, who actually did his internship with us here one week. Uh, One year, he is going to share one week as well. You have some great people who are going to share. And I believe God is going to provide a message that you need to hear. So I invite you, still come anyways. It's going to be a great opportunity to be a part of the ministry of the church. All the other things that go on, they're still going to go on. It's not going to fall to the wayside. It'll still be taking place. So my one thing is I ask you, don't die while I'm gone. So it seems like any time the pastor goes on vacation, people die. Uh, We'd rather not have that happen. So it is a blessing to have you, and I look forward to sharing with you again next week, and I look forward to my uh, sabbatical. Thank you for being with us. Go in peace.